So what do you think if we were just to go maybe on the square or go to UNT campus or, you know, somewhere maybe not in a church building and you were to ask people to either maybe define marriage, who can marry, um, you know, what's, what's maybe the purpose of it? Do you think you would get consistent answers? Do you think you'd get people saying, you know, the same thing? I think there's a lot of confusion um, out there today regarding, regarding marriage. You know, as we've discussed the past several weeks, that we're in this section of the confession that's dealing with our Christian liberty. Right, so it's not meaning that we can just, we're free to do whatever we want. No, but it's that Christians are bound to obey Christ in what he has taught us in his word. So if the laws of men conflict with the laws of Christ, then we are not bound then to uphold those. So that's, those are the things that we've been looking at the last few weeks. And we find ourselves then... Again, tonight, in marriage. So we're in chapter 25 of the Confession. It's kind of interesting that in this chapter, uh, there's really not a clear definition um, that we'll see of marriage, but it's going to give us a really helpful framework. This chapter is in the Savoy Declaration, um, and it's in the Westminster, but... It's interesting that other confessions don't have a chapter on marriage. Um, even the first London confession did not have one. Um, but as you see tonight in this, we have four paragraphs dealing with marriage. And just to go ahead and clear this off the top, the Westminster has two additional uh, paragraphs in theirs dealing with divorce, um, and the, both the Savoy Declaration and the London Confession uh, both decided to omit those two paragraphs, um, and I think it's, it's helpful to consider, so the, the London doesn't say anything about it, about why they omitted it, but the Savoy does, um, and it talks specifically of the extended treatment that the Westminster Confession gives in this chapter. And they conclude with this, that there being nothing that tends more to heighten dissensions among brethren than to determine and adopt the manner of their difference under so high a title as to be an article of faith. And so basically what, what they're saying is that because there is... I think legitimate debate between brothers regarding divorce, whether it is permissible or not, whether it's lawful grounds for divorce, uh, that both the writers of the Savoy and the Second London agreed that for the sake of brotherly love and unity, that they would emphasize instead the sanctity of marriage while leaving room for disagreement on the different opinions on divorce. There was also the understanding at the time that Divorce was more of a civil matter rather than a church matter. And that was another reason that they chose to leave it out. And then again, divorce was also very rare at this time. 
Very few people, except for maybe the rich and wealthy, could actually afford it. So it just wasn't as big of a deal. But to be clear, the omission here of divorce, of these two paragraphs, it does not mean that the, that the writers of the Savoy and the London disagreed with the Westminster Divines, or that they had no opinion on divorce. In fact, I think if you were to read many of their writings, you would see that they do agree with them. But again, for the sake of Christian unity and Christian liberty, they omitted those paragraphs. And I would encourage you, I think they're, uh, they're two very helpful paragraphs on that topic, so I would encourage you to, to go and look at those. Well, let's take a look then really quick at our outline for tonight to kind of see where we're going. Uh, as with most chapters in the Confession, it starts kind of with a definition or summary statement about marriage, and then the following paragraphs are going to elaborate in more detail. So in paragraph one, we're going to see the pattern of marriage, maybe the nature of marriage. In paragraph two, we're going to see the purpose of marriage. And then the third point we're going to see is really paragraphs three and four. It's the parties in marriage. So like I said, we don't really get a clear definition in this chapter. You know, something like marriage is a covenant commitment, that it's formal and binding and it's permanent. You know, nothing is really even said regarding the roles of the husband and the wife in marriage. But instead, we're going to see boundaries set in place in which Christians are able to express their Christian liberty in marriage. So who can marry and for what purpose do we get married? So the pers- the, this first paragraph asserts, again, the, the nature the purpose, or the pattern of marriage. So we're going to see an affirmation right at the beginning, and that's followed by two denials. So let's read that first paragraph with me. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So I think the first thing to notice then here is that marriage is for all people. So this was a creation ordinance. You can see the proof text down there is Genesis 2, verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this was given to humanity before the fall. So marriage is a good thing for all people. So it's not just given to Israel. It's not just given to the church. It's given for all of people. God intended from creation for one man and one woman to be joined together by him. We see that the only thing that was lacking before the fall was that God saw all that he had made and said it's not good for man to be alone. He needed a helper. Nothing else in creation was suitable for him. Therefore, God created Eve, and he joined them together. 
And God saw this and he said that it was very good. So marriage is not just a civil contract. It wasn't something to fix some social brokenness. No, this was a blessing that was given to humanity before sin, all for the benefit of man. And scripture, of course, calls this union between man and woman a covenant. And so then all throughout scripture, the image of marriage is used to demonstrate God's covenant relationship with his people. It's used in the New Testament to point to the gospel, that Christ loved his future bride so much that he laid his life down for her. And through his death, his bride has been forever united to him. Well, now that we have this affirmation, now we get to our two denials, our two negatives. But before, before we do that, the fact that marriage is between one man and one woman, I think it's pretty applicable today, isn't it? I think our culture has lost any sense of a definition of who can and should marry. Instead of marriage being something that reflects this covenant that God made with his people, that it points to eternity, that it brings about godly offspring for the mutual help of a husband and a wife, that marriage has just become a thing you can do with who or with whatever you like. But the confession is clear that even if this wasn't as applicable then as it is maybe in our day, that in creation, God created male and he created female. And that these two, and only these two, would be joined together in covenant by God. So this is a clear denial then of same-sex marriage, really any kind of marriage that you see today that is not between a man and a woman. And it's sad, really, that that's something that we even have to address. Is it not that people are marrying anything? I mean, anything. Video game. I mean, it's crazy. Well, again, so this is going to be followed by these two negative statements. These two negative statements are speaking against polygamy. It says a man should not have more than one wife, and a wife should not have more than one husband at the same time. But you might be saying, like, well, what about all those guys in the Old Testament who had multiple wives? Abraham, David, Solomon? So because God did not condemn them, does that mean it was okay for them to do that? Well, the simple answer is no. In the Bible, men having multiple wives was usually due to lust or some type of lack of faith or selfishness. And just because it was happening did not mean that it was ever meant to be the norm. You know, the first time we see it in Scripture, it's, it's from the ungodly line of Cain. And it's seven generations after Adam. Lamech boasted, to, it says, his wives about killing a man. So the fact that this proud and ungodly man has thrown, up, has thrown off what has been the creation norm, man having one wife 
points to man's sinfulness and his willingness to abandon what God has said is good. So then why did God allow it? Instead of rebuking it right there and condemning it, you see instead instructions regarding right conduct where polygamy existed. I think it's similar, again, how God deals with divorce. He does not give it a divine approval, but instead, as Jesus says, he does these things because of the hardness of man's hearts. So because of man's sinful heart, because they would fall into these things, God does not condemn it, but he gives protection for those who might be abused or hurt by it. But again, this does not in any way mean that God approves of this. If you just consider some of the ramifications of the, the polygamous relationships in the Old Testament, very rarely did these things end in a good way. You had, I mean, David, his son dies. You have Solomon, who just becomes really a fool in the end. And so much of it is because of these polygamous relationships. I think the last thing to note then in this paragraph, after these denials, is that last phrase that says, at the same time. So marriage is meant to point us to eternity. So until death do us part. So while one's spouse is living, then you are not to have another spouse. But if your spouse has died, as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 7, then you're free to remarry. So the nature of marriage, then, is that it is to be between one man and one woman. And they are to be married until death. So then, if this is the nature of marriage, then what is the purpose of it? Why do we, why do we need to do this? Well, let's read the second paragraph. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and the preventing of uncleanness. So the confession here gives us three reasons then for marriage. First, for the mutual help of the husband and wife. Second, for the increase of mankind. And third, from preventing uncleanness. So first, it's for the mutual help of both the husband and wife. Remember, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. He needed fellowship. He needed companionship. He needed help. So the woman then was created to meet these needs. It's important to note that mutual help is at the beginning of this list. This is the first thing to come here. And another way to understand this mutual help is companionship. It's love. We see a clear picture of this in Ephesians 5. You know, the first paragraph, again, showed us the nature of marriage, that it's God joining together one man and one woman in a covenant until eternity. And we said that this was a picture, then, of the gospel 
of us being united to Christ in a covenant relationship, Ephesians 5 makes this image of the gospel even more clear for us. It says that wives should submit to and respect their husbands like they do Christ. And that husbands should love their wives like Christ has loved the church by giving himself for her. This is what companionship is to look like. A husband and a wife sacrificially loving one another, supporting one another, encouraging one another, and helping one another. But it's not just companionship, right? At creation, God intended for the man and woman to procreate and populate the earth. The confession uses the word here, legitimate issues. So God's rule and law for humanity that we see in Genesis 1 is that children are brought forth in the context of marriage. That the two that God has brought together should seek to fill the earth. We also see in Genesis 1 that one way in which man is to subdue and take dominion of the earth is through procreation. Through having kids and raising them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Teaching them to do all the things that God has commanded for his glory. You know, I read somewhere as I was studying for this that man's rule of the earth is not ecological or environmental but it's matrimonial and familial. That God still works through families in this way, doesn't he? That we can draw then from Genesis 1 that one way God will grow his people is through the family, is through godly offspring. Well, the third reason then for marriage is to prevent uncleanness. So this makes it clear that sexual activity then outside of marriage is unmistakably wrong. Having sexual desire, it's a good thing. It's something that God has given us. But gratifying that desire outside of marriage is wrong. Whether through adultery with someone else or by gratifying those desires in some other form outside of marriage. God has given us this gift of marriage for a safe and satisfying way to fulfill that desire that honors God. So if marriage then is for all people, we've seen these three good reasons for it, then are we free then just to marry whoever we want? as long as, I guess, they're of the opposite sex. In the last two paragraphs, we're going to see the freedom that we have in Christ to marry, but we're also going to see restrictions that God has placed. So first, let's look at our freedom. Paragraph 3 says, It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true religion 
should not marry with infidels or idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. So this, this paragraph can be broken down really in three sections, and it's kind of divided by those semicolons. So you have this general statement for all people that it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. Again, we, we saw that. This is a creation ordinance. It's, it's, it's a good thing. But you see, after that first semicolon, it says yet. So then we have a restriction. So in the next two sections, you have restrictions in for believers. So first, we see that it is right and good for people to marry. We've already seen that in the first paragraph. It is limited, however, by these two phrases. You have judgment and consent. So judgment, then, is referring to the age of a person entering marriage. So in English law at the time of the confession, it had placed a minimum age for marriage. And it also required permission from parents under 21. That's kind of the, the background of the idea of judgment there. And then consent is just referring, it's, it's referring to things like arranged marriages or you know, maybe people without the mental capacity to make decisions for themselves. I think at the root of this, so there's an understanding that though you're maybe free to marry, that there are times in which some unions may be unwise. That there's wisdom in considering these things. But then we see, again, the two limiting clauses that the confession gives. First, Christians should, really it says Christians have a duty to marry in the Lord. So the word duty, we saw back in chapter 19 on God's law. Speaking of obedience, that it is the duty of the Christian to obey these precepts. That Christians must marry in the Lord. It says those who profess the true religion should not marry infidels or idolaters. So infidels are simply those who have no faith. They're unbelievers. And idolaters are those who worship falsely or worship a false god. Well, then next it says Christians should not be unequally yoked with those who have lived wicked lives. So this really parallels the infidels. Those who live wicked lives are those who have no God really but themselves. And Christians should not marry those who uphold and maintain damnable heresies. And this parallels then idolaters. So a true believer then, for example, should not be yoked to one who's maybe anti-Trinitarian. That is, a, that is a heresy. that You cannot be yoked with someone who believes that. I think Sam Renahan in his book makes a, makes a helpful point. Then the next chapter on the church, in paragraph 2, the writers are stating who can be members of Christ's church. And it's those who profess the true faith, like we just saw, 
in the gospel and are obedient to God through Christ. Now listen to this. It says, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation. So a member of a true church is one who professes and believes the true gospel and does not uphold any of these heresies. Therefore, Sam says, Christians then are free to marry and should marry those who are qualified for church membership. So the confession really makes no exceptions here. Christians are to marry in the Lord. We are not to be unequally yoked. Well, now the last paragraph then gives us really our last restriction on marriage. Marriage ought not to be done within degrees of consanguinity or affinity, forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. So this paragraph really gives us two more restrictions. First, really, Scripture is is clear in Leviticus 18 that we are not to marry blood relations. That is what is meant by consanguinity. You can't go and marry your sister, your cousin, or a daughter. Affinity refers to relatives by marriage, which are also included in Leviticus 18. So this could be like a sister-in-law or son-in-law. That all of these like family relationships, Scripture says that those, those are forbidden. Leviticus, again, 18 After giving these restrictions, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not commit any of these abominations. So I think the big takeaway then for us here, I think must be, and we saw this again in religious worship, but it must be that God has prescribed for us in his word how we are to live that it is not up to us to decide what marriage should look like or who we are able to marry. God has told us in his word these things. Lustful men can and should never try and determine what is right and good in marriage. Our only hope is to go to God's word And to live as it says to live. To hold marriage in how he tells us to hold marriage. God's word says that, again, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. They are meant to be companions. Loving and serving one another. Seeking to sanctify one another. And they are meant to fill the earth with their offspring. To not deprive one another of their physical affections. And that they are to be united together in the Lord until eternity. And that all other forms of marriage that the world comes up with 
are abominations to God. I thought this was really good as we close. Listen to what Tertullian, a second century saint, says about marriage. What kind of yoke is it that of two believers? It is of one hope, one desire, one discipline, and one and the same service. Both are brethren, both are fellow servants. There's no difference of spirits or of the flesh. Rather, they are truly two in one flesh. Where the flesh is one, the spirit is two. Meaning also, I don't want that to be confusing. Together they pray. Together they prostrate themselves. They perform their fast together. Mutually teaching, mutually exhorting, mutually sustaining. They are both equally in the church of God. Equally at the banquet of God. Equally in straits equally in persecutions and in refreshments. Neither has to hide anything from the other. Neither shuns the other. Neither is troublesome to the other. With complete freedom, the sick are visited and the poor relieved. There is no stealthy signing, no trembling greeting, no mute benediction. Psalms and hymns, echo between the two and they mutually challenge each other as to which will better chant to their Lord. Christ rejoices when he sees and hears such things. Brothers and sisters, this is God's design for marriage. And that should be what we are striving for. And that should be what we are encouraging one another to in our marriages.